Hey guys, welcome back to The Art of Travel. Today's guest is a good friend of mine, who I met almost a decade ago while we were both living and working out of downtown LA. Ari Tamer was the chef and owner of Alma, a restaurant that started as a pop-up before expanding into a permanent space on Broadway Street. Alma opened in a moment when downtown LA was just beginning to gentrify. Alma was a fresh take on California cuisine, executed conceptually and excitingly. Alma earned Ari local and national praise, from garnering rave reviews from the LA Times to earning him Best New Chef of the Year at Food & Wine and a James Beard nomination. Ari has always been candid about the pressures and complexity of navigating the restaurant industry, from almost losing it all in a lawsuit to reincarnating with new frameworks of support systems. Through it all, Ari has consistently centered community as a common thread in his work. Recently, I reconnected with Ari to talk about his latest project, where he is a partner and chief officer at Musa. Musa is a 180-acre beachfront property in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. At Musa, he and his partners are rethinking hospitality in a modern lens. Through a multi-use development plan that mixes hotel units and homes, Musa plans to scale a program that creates an ecosystem that encourages tourism while continuing to serve local communities. Here's Ari on the line. So Ari, thank you again for joining me today on the Art of Travel podcast. I'm really excited to have you here as a guest and learn more about everything that you're doing in Zihuatanejo. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here and stoked on the project, so it'll be fun to talk about for sure. And for a little bit of background, where are you from? Uh, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up in Palo Alto, and I spent the majority of my professional career in Los Angeles. And what were you doing over in Los Angeles? I was a chef, and as I progressed in my career, I ran food and beverage for the Standard Hotel in West Hollywood as well. And just for a little bit of context, I actually met you at your restaurant called Alma in downtown LA. And can you tell me a little bit of what experiences culminated in opening Alma? Yeah, so I started cooking after I graduated from George Washington University. I was you know, trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to do, what I was interested in. And I had started to really get, a, get interested in sustainable agriculture and food politics and, you know, this whole world of, of public health. And so, you know, initially I thought I was going to apply for a master's in public health and head down that route. And at the same time, I started uh, cooking at home. I started watching Food Network and getting obsessed with it. So I decided to take a year in between uh, university and applying for graduate school. And during that year, I started working in restaurants in the Bay Area, cooking for free and just seeing if it was something that I was interested in. And after a while, I, I really fell in love with it. I was fortunate enough to work with some really great chefs and decided that, that was really what I wanted to do. So um, I worked in San Francisco for a while. I was able to work in this really wonderful restaurant in the south of France and then returned to the Bay Area before uh, heading back to L.A. How old were you when you started Alma? I was 25 uh, when I first started the Alma pop-ups and I was 26 when the restaurant proper opened. What was the vision behind it? It was really just about being able to cook the food that I was interested in. You know, for me, food is really a form of expression. It's a form of nostalgia. It's a, it's a way for me to express myself. I'm, you know, especially when I was younger, I really wasn't great with words. So it was a way of telling stories and ex- expressing emotion. And so 
Alma for me was an ability and a venue to do that. And what kind of food were you creating at Alma? It's hard to describe, but I, you know, the best way I could describe it was uh, California cooking. It was really based on sense of place. It was based on relationships with farmers, with nature, with you know all of the different cultural elements that can come to play in a city like LA, where you have you know all sorts of different uh, immigrants and ethnicities and histories that that kind of weave underneath the surface. And you were nominated for a James Beard Award early on in your cooking career, but you've often spoke on record how this sort of damaged the reputation of your restaurant more than it helped. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Yeah, I think that, you know, I definitely wouldn't say that it damaged the, re- the restaurant per se. I think that what it did was it it altered expectations. I think that when we opened Alma, it was such a mom and pop restaurant. You know, it was open for less than fifty thousand dollars. Most of what we did was pretty illegal. We had no permits. We were just really winging it, and because of that, it really was this underdog little restaurant in a storefront in a in a pretty rundown part of town at that time. And so, at that point, people would come in with really no expectations. They were just had maybe had heard something about it. Maybe a friend had told them about it, and it gave us a more of a blank canvas to express ourselves and to provide an experience without necessarily having to meet a particular expectation or a comparison to another restaurant as the press, which, you know, was also a huge blessing and has given me, you know, every opportunity that I had going forward in my career started to mount um, the, the change in, in expectations of the diners was really apparent. The change in the way that peers in the city viewed the restaurant was really clear. And, and because of that, it became really difficult to meet diners with an open mind. I think that a lot of them had assumptions about what it was, what the food was going to be like, what it should be like. And because of that, I often felt like we were behind the eight ball or in a losing battle uh, meeting expectations. Did it change your approach to the way that you were creating dishes as well? No, it didn't change my approach to how I was creating, but it did become incredibly frustrating in terms of feeling like the vision or the the expression was was translating. And I think that's the hardest thing when you're when you're creating something is that you know you want it to be understood. It's really important that you feel like the recipient of what you're creating is, you know, at least in a similar headspace to to kind of accept the vision or to go on the journey with you. And I felt like uh, it was really difficult to kind of crack through the hype or the, the perceived hype uh, when people were coming into the restaurant. Yeah, that's really interesting. And what about your community that you built with Alma? How did that come about? Uh, it was really, it was really, really organic. The pop up uh, was started with the help of a couple of friends. Uh, some local businesses were lucky to lend us their dining room, and I had been working in Los Angeles for about a year and a half at that point, running another kitchen, and so I had developed a lot of relationships with farms um, and with different meat and seafood purveyors, and they were incredibly supportive initially. Just I think because they. They loved the idea of what we were going to do. It didn't really exist at that time. You know, there were other tasting menu or conceptual restaurants in LA, but I think the price point was was much much higher. And so for us, you know, from there, 
we had a community of guests and, you know, we started to have a community of local critics who took notice of the restaurant. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to count Jonathan Gold as one of those community members who was incredibly supportive and um, he really was able to put the restaurant in a map in what I felt was a really genuine and organic way. I think that he really was proud of, you know, what the city was starting to produce creatively. And so all of our community and, and the circle around the restaurant kind of grew out of that center point of just really organic, enthusiastic support. I think what I find so impressive about your story is that you opened a restaurant at such a young age and it feels like an even bolder move now looking back. What have been some of the roadblocks you've encountered along the way and what have you learned from them? For me personally, it was just an absolute lack of understanding of business in general, of, of all of the nuances and intricacies that go into not the cooking, which I felt like came fairly easy for me, but the, the maintenance of the business, all of the, the logistics, the taxes, the accounting, the fees, everything that goes into it, you know, that information is not really, and especially then was not available to people in my position. And I think that because of that, uh, I made a series of really bad mistakes, repeated some of those mistakes. And uh, in the end, you know, cost the business any kind of long-term success, even from the outside when we were perceived to be really successful, just because of mismanagement on my end, because of, you know, ignorance and lack of understanding, it really put us in a, in a fairly impossible position. Yeah. I mean, you were really, really young when you launched this. And I feel like maybe it, is it part, partially sort of the ideological side of youth butting heads with sort of the more like the weight of reality and those sort of expectations tied to more of the bureaucratic details of running a business? I think it's more the pathway to becoming an entrepreneur as a cook is that if you're working in fine dining kitchens, for the most part, you're so focused and so single-mindedly focused on the food, on cooking, on learning, on service, on prep, on all of these uh, all of these areas that are just related to the physical act of cooking. You know, perhaps along your way, you become a sous chef or a chef de cuisine, and you know, you learn some of the some of the behind the scenes things that are going on with regard to running the business. But I think what really, what it really depends on, what success really depends on is, you know, for most people meeting the right business partner who can, can match your skills with their skills. Uh, in my position, it just wasn't something that I had access to. And I think my impatience and uh, ambition pushed me probably faster than I should have gone. And we weren't really able to find that element for the business. We weren't really able to find that the savvy, the help with navigating the logistics and the bureaucracy that goes into it. And so it became, you know, for better and for worse, a restaurant that was so purely focused on the product and the expression. Yeah. And there have been several iterations of Alma and other restaurant projects of yours since then. Can you tell me a little bit about each development? Yeah, so as we were closing Alma as a as a brick and mortar storefront, um, we 
were contacted by Standard Hotels, who we had had some previous discussions before for some of their other spaces, but nothing really came of it. And they had an opportunity for us to take over the kitchen in their location in West Hollywood. And so for me, it was an opportunity to continue doing what I was doing. They were really, really kind and offered, you know, pretty much full creative freedom in, in, in the restaurant and a ton of support. And so it was a really great opportunity to jump in uh, into a situation in which I was able to create, but also into a situation in which I had structural and financial support behind the project. So Alma started again as, you know, a temporary experience. Again, we did really well. There was a big, a big push of support for the restaurant being able to come back. And, and because of that, our contract was made essentially permanent. And we expanded into running the food and beverage program for the whole of the hotel. So all of the room service overnights and the poolside, just the whole, the whole 100 plus room project. Uh, that overall was a really challenging and, and really exceptional experience because from there I really was able to participate in the business aspects of what was going on, of understanding how the numbers worked, how they needed to work. I was given access to manager meetings and all of their financial information to see how you know, how a restaurant at that size and scale operates. So it was incredibly informative for me going forward. It was really like a crash course in, um, it was a crash course in all the things that I hadn't been able to learn up until that point. And has this all been applicable now in your, in your current role? Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, being able to see how a machine at that size and that level functions uh, was incredibly informative. I mean, I, I don't know where I would get an opportunity like that uh, with, you know, the ability to also have creative freedom alongside of it. What is the biggest difference between operating a restaurant for a hotel versus a standalone and silo? In our experience, it was really, the biggest difference was really just the amount of people on the team at all times. I think that not just the kitchen and not just the front of house, but it's, you know, that it's the front desk, it's the concierges, it's the security, all of these people, you know, either you're feeding them as part of the staff, either they're the ones giving information to the guests about what's going on in the restaurant events, what's going on in the hotel. So I think that understanding how to create cohesive communication, how to motivate and inspire people that you might not be interacting with all that often, who might not you know, be able to or do come in and enjoy the restaurant, and how to, you know, how to motivate everybody towards one goal. Yeah, that's, that's really exciting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely the aspect of, the, of that experience that I gravitated to the most. I think I remember, too, when you were transitioning between... Alma the restaurant and Alma at the Standard. I think, you know, this was way back when you were first initially concerned with sort of translating that community experience into a hotel experience because, of course, the sort of guests that come into a hotel restaurant is completely different. But was that just sort of a new challenge or new frontier and sort of translate that community experience you had in your downtown restaurant to a, a much wider audience that you normally wouldn't be able to cater to? I think it was that. And then as well, it was, you know, for me, understanding what a hotel restaurant can and should do. And I think that, 
you know, there, there were certain disagreements in terms of infrastructure and changes on the physical space that I felt like would have enhanced the, the restaurant experience at the standard and made it feel not like a hotel restaurant, but, you know, a restaurant that happens to have a hotel alongside of it. And I think that was the, one of the biggest lessons that I learned is that people don't really want to go to a hotel restaurant. Uh, they don't mind going to a restaurant that either is part of a hotel or part of some kind of development. But what I think people want is whether it's, it's true or not, they want to feel some kind of independent creative, uh, creative entrepreneurship or spirit when it comes to eating out. And so for me, that was the, the biggest takeaway was how to create an experience when it's attached to another institution that feels separate and independent, but still internally is maintaining those links between the two. A balancing act us to your most exciting venture. How did you get involved with the project at Musa? So as I had developed in my career, the thing that I really loved the most was leadership and being able to inspire a team, being able to train other leaders, being able to motivate people and, and get them to find their own uh, their own techniques to making decisions, their own techniques to solving problems and kind of helping them move blockages out of their way. That was what I really enjoyed the most. I think for me, cooking I love, but as the, the more and more I progressed into it, what I didn't love was was cooking for money and feeling like the expression was tied up in some kind of economic exchange. And so food and cooking will always be something that I love and you know eventually maybe even will come back to but just hopefully not in a place where it's such a it's such a capitalistic endeavor with musa um i had traveled to ziwadanejo uh as a kid with my mom and loved the area and then i came back um, when i was at the standard just on a surf trip and i met a couple of friends uh, uh friends of friends who had a little brand here and then a larger architectural real estate and design firm. And we really hit it off. We had shared vision, shared ideas, and both kind of shared plans for wanting to build some kind of comprehensive hospitality project. So we kept in touch. I would go down and and see how the progress was going on their end. They would come up and eat in the restaurants. and, And we would just continue to talk about dreams and vision plans and as things progressed, they found this really, really magical piece of land they were able to close on. And from there, it just became more and more real. Visiting the beachfront property that you guys are renovating, it is honestly like a hidden paradise. What you guys are building at Musa is pretty ambitious. How did all of these different ideas go into the development of the project? I think for us was was really thinking about what is the kind of environment in which we would want to live in which we would want which we, in which we could feel like we could thrive my my partners in the project and and really the the original visionaries behind it Tara Medina and Andres Saavedra they had spent so much time building for other people and and thinking about you know what would we do if we could just build for ourselves or build for our friends or build for our community. And so those ideas, a lot of them between us were shared, you know, you know, an importance of art and importance of 
taking care and, and acting as stewards for the environment, having, you know, pathways to entrepreneurial development for people both in the local area and on our team. And as each of these ideas became more and more clarified, it came alongside of finding this, you know, fairly large piece of land, 180 acres that could house such a large vision and, and such an ambitious dream. And can you share all that you're building at Musa? We have various stages of the project, but right now what we're building is a 11 key small beautiful hotel and then around that hotel is a little community of homes ranging in size from one to from a studio to a two bedroom around these really beautiful uh, mangroves that we're putting in that are going to act as natural water filtration systems for the farm, which is another aspect of the project. Uh, we're also building custom homes and we have a uh, work live area that's in the plans where people can come and rent a space and have access to industrial equipment, can have access to space and ideas and materials to develop a product uh, we have plans to also add in some audiovisual creative development infrastructure, recording studios, movie editing, uh, intellectual programming. And from there, you know, we, we eventually have hopes to build a little school to potentially build uh, some little medical clinics. You know, I think that we are trying not to plan too many specifics too far down the road and, and really pay attention to how people respond when they're living here, what the needs of the community are, not just our own community, but the needs of the towns that, have, that are uh, in our vicinity, you know, what kind of services we need to, that can help increase quality of life for both the people that have purchased homes and are interacting on our property, but also, you know, what can we do to further strengthen infrastructure? What can we do to, provide real pathways to income growth for, for the people that, um, that are our neighbors. Yeah, and I think that's really important to consider when you're building a development at this scale is that its impact, positive or negative, just deeply affects and can catalyze so much change within the surrounding community. And I really think that's interesting that just in Mexico in general and what you guys are building, there is this big wave of regenerative, sustainable hotels. Why was this an important pillar for you guys to pursue? I think we've all just seen how projects can go where they have sustainability only in the branding and only in the name or that don't even consider it at all. And we've seen the impact on culture. We've seen the impact on economics. And, you know, we've, we've seen how damaging that can be both for the project, but more importantly for, you know, the region as a whole. So for us, it was important, you know, not thinking that we're going in here to make this place better or we're going in here to improve everything, but it's, you know, really more about, you know, these are our values. These are things that are, are very important to us. We feel like a lot of them are universally beneficial, but at the same time, you know, we need to come in and listen. We need to communicate and pay attention to the environment. We need to pay attention to the local politics. We need to pay attention to the history and we need to understand that, you know, 
we can't just come in and produce hospitality jobs for people. We can't just come in and, and, you know, feel like we're making a difference because we're giving people maybe a housekeeping job or a, you know, a um, restaurant manager job. We really need to come in and provide an infrastructure for uh, people that work with us and people in the community to have access to new ideas, to have access to intellectual programming, to have access to uh, growth outside of you know what's in the immediate vicinity and so that's really what we feel like the project can do is it can you know bring in really interesting smart outside you know minds who can come and share and then at the same time you know also can learn from the artists that are local the craftspeople that are local the builders you know all of the people that both help to help work in the project have helped to construct the project or are the neighbors who have, you know, been here and have, you know, such a deep understanding of, you know, not just this piece of land, but, but the region as a whole and and the history. Yeah. I, I really, really love that. And I think that is sort of the future of travel and also the fact that you guys are building a lot of infrastructure for longer term stays to ensure that the type of tourism it attracts will be more of an ex- an exchange of ideas rather than just an extraction of an experience is, I think, key, yeah, I think, key to all of this. Yeah, I was going to say, I really think that's the most important part is that it's, you know, we can't just come in and feel like because, you know, of the of our fortunate situation to be born into the socioeconomic conditions that we were that that makes us somehow saviors or guardians or anything like that. It's, it's not the case at all. You know, we need to understand that there are so many aspects and, and, and parts that we're going to be complete novices in. And we need to maintain this, this ability to listen and react and understand just as much as we want to share. Yeah. And I'm so curious has COVID changed the design or any plans surrounding the hotel at all? No, it really just crystallized and clarified, I think, for us what we were doing. And I think it made it very, very clear uh, how important it was. And so I think that, you know, outside of providing a little bit of structural instability on our end, uh, it really just gave us t- a little bit of time to slow down, to think about you know, the rate of of growth that we wanted to pursue of, you know, how we wanted to act as, as neighbors, how we wanted to act as leaders within our team. And it just helped us, you know, look within and really, and really trust the vision. Can you share some of the sustainable features and regenerative projects that you guys are building out at the hotel? Yeah, I think, um, you know, being fortunate enough to work with Tara and Andres who have made sustainability such a, such a pillar of, of everything that they've done here for so long. Um, you know, they came in with, with a lot of really sophisticated ideas. So for us, it's, of course, starting with solar power for each of the homes. Uh, you know, we're really hoping to be able to provide power for the entire project uh, just via solar and then potentially also have some extra to give back to the grid. Uh, our farm is all organic 
Um, we're not going to be using pesticides. We're going to be developing soil and, and, you know, we're going to be looking out into the communities to find, you know, different seeds, different project, different products, heirlooms, things that have, you know, grown here for thousands of years and try to, uh, incorporate those into the, into the farm. Uh, we have, like I described before, our, our natural mangrove that we're building where we're going to be utilizing native plants and mangrove plants to act as water purifiers to provide irrigation for the, for the farm itself. Uh, we'll be doing gray water, uh, as well, treatment and, and cleaning in order to, uh, reduce our footprint on water use. All of the chemicals and cleaning supplies throughout the uh, throughout the property are going to be vetted by an outside organization, most likely to help us, you know, find the most sustainable options. You know, we even have hopes of being able to at some point purchase an industrial composter so that we can, you know, potentially provide services to the to the community at large. And I know that there's a lot of live animals also living on the property. What role does the livestock play in in the larger ecosystem that you guys are building? Uh, right now, I would say the majority of our of our animals are mostly different birds. So we have chickens, ducks, and peacocks, and, and flamingos. Of, <laughs> oh, oh, well, the, yeah. Well, we have, of course, we have the migratory birds. They're not quite actually flamingos. I, I don't quite remember the name of them, but they are those beautiful pink long-legged birds that spend spring and fall here. Um, but the the birds that we are, like our domesticated birds right now are acting not just as soil fertilization and food with their eggs, but uh, they're also um, acting as our insecticides. So we kind of let them wander around the property, pecking at the grass and the dirt. And so they keep out some of the the natural predators to our plants and, you know, they can help us manage scorpions and, you know, different things like that without having to spray and without having to use, you know, really destructive chemicals. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I didn't realize what role a chicken played in pest control. Yeah, it was really funny. Actually, we were trying to figure out, you know, what, because we have a, as the rains come here, we start to have a lot of scorpions, which are a part, of course, of the natural environment. But you know, when you have guests and children and potentially people wandering around, it could be a, a pretty dicey situation. So our the the head of our farming and, and eco program recommended that we just let the birds wander around fairly regularly and they would help manage the help manage the all of the scorpions. <laughs> and what elements of your personal and professional travel have you infused into Musa? I mean, I, I came here because I'm obsessed with surfing. So I think finding ways to weave and, and Andres and Tara as well, where they met surfing. So I think for us, that's a huge, a huge part of our background and culture. And it's really just, it's really just this, like as a surfer, when you travel, you, you're going to these places and you're trying to do it quietly and you're trying to do it respectfully and you're trying to listen and learn. Otherwise, you know, you can find yourself in a pretty dangerous situation, either in the ocean or with locals or whatever. And so I think, you know, it comes with this dual with this dual side where you're, you know, probably a little bit more adventurous, probably a little bit more open to risk, but at the same time, you know, you know that you need to, you know that you need to come into an experience quietly and softly and 
you know, without making a huge, without trying to bring a huge amount of attention to yourself and just slowly observe and listen and then participate. And I think like surfing has been, you know, really the primary driver of my travel. And so because of that, it's really just trying to bring this softness and yeah, and all of that into, into our, into the way we lead, into the way we, into the way we interact and into the way that we try to share our guest experience. That's really interesting. I think too, as a surfer, you are really interacting with nature and you can experience all of the things or all of the wildlife while you're out there. And is there a big difference or have you felt a big difference surfing in California versus surfing in Ziwa? I think the biggest difference outside of the lack of crowds is that it's really just a lot less competitive here. I think that, you know, nobody really cares much about being the best surfer or, you know, about anything like that. I think it really is just, uh, it's such a pure, a pure experience here where everyone's doing it because they love it. They're finding time. You know, a lot of people here don't have cars. So it's like they're taking a bus and and they're doing it because they just love it so much. And, you know, and as well, you get to be in these really incredible locations without people around watching the sun come up with jungles and sea turtles and all of that stuff. It seems like there's way more animal life in the oceans there too, because just simply based on the fact that there's less surfers in the water. Yeah, and just less activity in in general in the ocean. I think that, you know, it's the water is quite clean. There's, you know, there is a real focus and effort on preserving, you know, fish species and protecting sea turtles and protecting sea life here. And so because of that, yeah, the oceans are alive and, you know, they're filled with everything from sharks to fish to turtles to dolphins and, and whales. What have been some of your most formative travel memories as a chef? I think the most formative experience was when I went to go work in France was arriving to this restaurant uh, in the south of France in a town called Arles. Uh, The restaurant was called La Chassagnette, and it was located on a farm in a wetlands wildlife preserve, completely organic. And so you're driving to get to the restaurant, you're driving through these swamps and rice paddies, and you come to this gate, and as you drive in, you kind of get completely smothered by the smell of roses because they had this 150 varietal rose garden there and then as you turn a corner you just see this whole environment and ecosystem of vegetables and flower and fruits and everything and you I was taken by the chef Armand through the garden tasting things and seeing how it all how the operation worked before I even got into the kitchen it was just so inspiring to see that like the priority for them the first thing that they wanted to show anybody was the garden you know that experience for me the seeing how food that um, that doesn't go into a refrigerator that's picked and then cooked and served all you know in the same day just how powerful those flavors are and how much emotion diners feel when they're eating food that comes like that. And and so for me, it was just such a catharsis of seeing, you know, how, how impactful that can be. I love hearing that story because now that you've mentioned it, I can totally see how, how that imprint translate into your cooking. 
Yeah, it was definitely that experience, that chef, that restaurant was, you know, and continues to be one of the most inspiring uh, experiences that I that I had both as a just as a person, but but definitely as a chef and as somebody who creates. And what places have been the most formative for you as a surfer? Definitely this part of Mexico. I think the the rawness of it, the the emptiness, the just like the beauty of the water has definitely been incredibly impactful. Uh, surfing in, in Fiji and seeing just the absolute raw power of the ocean and, and the also the indifference of the ocean, that it, it really doesn't care, you know, whether you live or whether you die or, or what happens. And I think that because of that, being able to just be in the presence of that kind of natural force is in, incredibly awe-inspiring. And then as well, Western Australia was um, just the, the drama of the coast and the and the desolation and the beauty and, and everything that goes along with it there was was pretty profound. Ari, you should write a book, a poetry book about surfing. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should. That was really beautiful. And last but not least, when does Casa Musa finally open? So the Casa Musa, our first little beachfront property, will be open to the public in June this year. And our Hotelito, which is, you know, our our real flagship hospitality property, uh, we're looking and, and really believe it's going to be open in November of this year. Amazing. Well, I look forward to going to both openings at some point this year. Yeah, we're, we're excited to have you back. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all of your thoughts on this and your, your story. Of course, it was my pleasure. It was really fun to, to revisit some of these memories and kind of, even for me, think about how they impact me now and, and, and moving forward. Thanks, Ari. Of course. Thank you. Tune in every Tuesday for a new episode on the Art of Travel podcast. Subscribe to the Art of Travel podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you may stream your favorite podcasts. The Art of Travel is created by Olivia Lopez, produced by Bon Weekender, edited by Jason Stewart, and music composed by Slow Shiver. We'll see you on Tuesday.